Well, we are continuing uh, our sermon series through the new mission statement. Last week, we looked at, by God's grace, we, and uh, we talked about who we are and that, and that God decidedly uh, forms us together as a we, um, as a church community. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at, by God's grace, we glorify Him. And to, and to assist us uh, with that, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, which is on page number 1,889 of the Pew Bibles. And I hear most of the pages have finished turning, so hear the word of the Lord. Oh, actually, it's 1,888, sorry. Uh, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. This is the word of the Lord. So last week I made a very bold statement. I said that God has given the church a mission and that we can only carry out that mission if we become members of a local church. And what makes this difficult is as we read the the New Testament, it's sometimes hard to sort out when God is commanding us as individual believers to do something or when a specific command is meant, you know, for the entire church to go do something as an entire church. And that's because the church is made up of individual Christians. And so I'm going to ask a question to help us uh, understand the difference this morning. And if you've been with me in a council meeting or a committee meeting, you've probably heard me ask this question before. But but for all of us to consider, here's the question. What are the basic elements that a church must possess in order to be recognizable as a church? Let me ask that again. What are the basic elements that a church must possess 
in order to be recognizable as a church. Now to help us get on the same page with the answer to that question, I have a little thought experiment that I'd like us all to consider. Now imagine that you are part of the underground church in China, where the government is very strict about punishing unauthorized churches. But you and a group of believers are able to gather on Sunday mornings from 10 a.m. until 11 a.m. to take communion, sing a hymn, and hear the word of God preached. Is that a church? Yes, that's a church. Even if they rarely see each other or contact each other the rest of the week. Now, why is it that we all instinctively know that that's a church? Even though there's no Bible studies, there's no small groups, there's no service projects, there's no outreach to the community. We don't even know if they have elders or deacons. But we all know that's a church. Why? The reason is, by God's grace, we glorify him most clearly when we gather as a church to come and to worship him. I'm going to make the claim this morning that our gathering as a church fuels and sends us out into our individual lives as Christians, and then our individual lives as Christians are lived to maintain and build back up the church. And so there's this symbiotic relationship between us as God's people gathered and how we live our daily lives that should drive us back with more people into the church to gather together and to worship him. Now I've heard people say, and maybe you've heard people say this before too, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I connect with God just fine on my own with Christian music and personal devotion. I've heard people say, I really just connect with God by myself out in nature. And while all of us can agree that it is possible for someone to be a Christian and not attend church for a season, and the reason is because we're saved by faith alone. We don't earn our salvation by attending church. But we're not saved by a faith that is alone. And the way we live our lives is evidence that we have true faith. And the most obvious, visible evidence that someone loves God is that they love God's people. And they want to come and to gather together with God's people. The most basic evidence of true faith is being able to drag our tired, weary, sin-wrecked carcasses to this place on Sunday morning to just receive God's mercy and grace because we desperately need it. Gathering with God's people is such a powerful draw and such a minimal bar to get over that if someone does not desire to gather, no one's worried about them breaking a certain rule. We're concerned about whether they truly love God and his people. Because gathering together with whoever we claim to be associated with is literally the most basic evidence that we're actually associated with those people. 
If you say you're part of a softball team, but you never, you never go to softball practice or to the games, it's impossible to say you're part of a softball team. If you say you're part of a social club, but you're never there, then you're not part of a social club. It makes no sense to say I'm part of that group, but then never to gather with that group. So even though Christian music and personal devotions and nature walks are good, we're not actually commanded to do any of those things, but we are commanded to gather together as a church. The New Testament just assumes that when someone becomes a believer in Jesus, they immediately, as a, as a knee-jerk reaction, join a community because it is by God's grace that we glorify him. Now, the image in Scripture that best illustrates everything that I've been saying is the image of the temple of God. And so here's our outline this morning. First, we're going to look at the Old Testament temple was where God's people gathered to worship. And next, we're going to look at the New Testament temple is when God's people gather to worship. And then finally, what about when God's people are not gathered? Okay, let me show you what I mean. In the Old Testament, the temple was the only place where someone could be in the presence of God. The temple was the only place where Old Testament worshipers could draw near to God with a sincere heart and they could see the blood of the lamb being shed and sprinkled on the altar, representing God's forgiveness of their sins, And it was the center of Old Testament worship. The temple idea begins in the Garden of Eden. The garden was a temple, and there's many things that we could go into to explain that, like the lights and the the dome and everything that's talked about in in the image of the Garden of Eden points to the fact that it's a temple. But one of the main ways that we know that it's a temple is because God was with them. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He was their God. They were his people. But then they sinned, and sinners cannot be in the presence of God. And a temple is where God is. And so they had to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. And the story of the entire Bible is the story of God making a way and a place for him to dwell with his people again. But from the Garden of Eden until Moses builds the tabernacle in the desert, there is no place for God to dwell with his people. In fact, from the time of the Garden of Eden until Moses, the story is all about God creating a people for himself. And then after he creates this people for himself and rescues them out of Egypt, he brings them into the desert and he has Moses build a tabernacle, which is just a large tent that is meant to uh, resemble a temple. And he does that so that he can come and he can be with them. And the tabernacle is the place where God's people come to worship and they come with animals to sacrifice and God accepts those sacrifices offered to him in faith and true believers would repent of their sins and they would trust God's promises to forgive them and as evidence of their faith, they would offer lambs and bulls and goats all picturing God's wrath against sin and the need for someone else to die in our place in order for God to forgive our sins and for him to be with us. And one of the most dramatic scenes is in the book of Leviticus. After the tabernacle is complete and Aaron and his sons are installed as priests, God comes down to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and we read this. 
Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. Can you imagine this this glorious moment right before your eyes? And the tent was where God met with his people for hundreds of years after this, even after they took over the promised land. And it wasn't until King Solomon took the throne and built an actual temple modeled after the tabernacle. We read this. When Solomon finished praying, fire, came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. As I survey the evangelical landscape in our modern society right now, I see churches trying to conjure this up. They use light shows. They use music, right? They're smoke and fog machines because they so desperately want to bring God down and to feel his presence like this. But God cannot be brought down. God shows up when and where and how God wants to show up. And then God's presence remains with his people in the temple in Jerusalem for over 300 years after this, in spite of all their sin. But because of their sin, eventually the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God's presence leaving the temple. And a few years later, this temple that Solomon built is destroyed. But after the temple is destroyed, Ezekiel has another vision. And if you turn to the book of Ezekiel and you read the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, it is this long description of a temple. And it's the perfect temple in the perfect city that one day God will build for his people. And Ezekiel ends his description this way. He says, And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. So this is a vision of the perfect temple and the perfect city because it's the place where God dwells with his people forever, right? It's a vision of Eden restored. And so the Old Testament understanding of the temple is the place where God's people gather. And it ends on this note from Ezekiel, pointing forward to a perfect temple and a perfect city where God dwells with his people forever. So, if the Old Testament temple was where God's people gather to worship, the New Testament temple is when God's people gather to worship. The New Testament first picks up on this language when we read about how Jesus is God's perfect temple in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. We read there, Jesus answered the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So if the temple is the place where God dwells, then Jesus is the perfect temple 
because Jesus is God. And Jesus takes on flesh and he comes to be with us. Earlier in John, we read this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And when John writes, we have seen his glory, he's pointing all of his Jewish readers who know what he's talking about back to those scenes that we just read about in Leviticus and Chronicles. This this glorious presence of the Lord. One of the ways we know that too is because when he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally, that is, and he tabernacled among us. So Jesus was the tabernacle. His body is the temple and his glory, his glory, they saw it. So the New Testament starts with the body of Jesus being God's temple. And then it takes all of this imagery and ties it together with the church. Jesus' body is God's temple, and the church is the body of Christ. Old Testament worship was in the temple. New Testament worship is in Christ. Because we are living stones in the temple of God. So now we get to our passage today. Peter says this. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, notice we come to him, right? We we don't longer go to the temple, we come to Jesus. As we come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we come together, we are the temple of God. And what happens in God's temple? Well, we worship him by offering spiritual sacrifices. And we are the perfect temple and our worship is considered perfect by God because it is acceptable to him through Jesus Christ whose perfect sacrifice makes our worship acceptable to him. Peter goes on. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. Now, Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem was built, okay? So this is Isaiah speaking. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious. Do you see? Even the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus as the precious cornerstone of the perfect temple in the perfect city. And those who build their life on that cornerstone, those who trust in him, they are the ones who believe, and to them, Jesus is precious. And the glory of God that entered the tabernacle that Moses built, the glory of God that entered the temple that Solomon built, the promises of the presence of God in the perfect temple and the perfect city revealed to us through Ezekiel, the glory of that presence is with us when we come together like living stones on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And all we do is we come and we hear somebody preach God's word, We eat some bread and wine. We sing some hymns. We pray together. But God's glory is here. Paul puts it this way. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're being built together to become that perfect temple in the perfect city that Ezekiel saw. So in the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God's fiery presence showed up and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. It was the place where God displayed his glory and it was the place where all God's people came to worship him. And then the New Testament takes this grand and glorious picture of the temple and tells us that now when we come together as God's people, we are that temple. But like I said, there's no fiery presence. There's no sacrifice on the altar. We simply gather as God's people on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. We listen to the apostles' teaching. We pray, we sing hymns, and we take the Lord's Supper. As members of an ordinary church, listening to a very ordinary man teach the Bible, eating ordinary bread and wine, and praying and singing ordinary songs and hymns and spiritual songs, But when we do, God's glory is with us in the exact same way that he was with the Old Testament saints that we read about. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God's people gathered to worship. In the New Testament, the temple is when God's people gather to worship. Now, it is true that God is always with us. And as individual believers, we are God's temple because his spirit dwells with us. But there is something incredible And glorious that only happens when God's people gather as the church because when we gather, we are the temple of God and his fiery presence is here. In faith, we trust that every Sunday fire comes down from heaven. God's glory fills this temple called Emmanuel Church because for us who believe Jesus, the true living stone, the cornerstone of this temple is precious. And I believe it would be idolatry and sin to build a golden calf and try and bring God down so that we could see him and feel his presence. As I believe many churches do when they worship on Sunday. Many churches are looking for signs and wonders every Sunday morning and so they conjure them up. They create a spectacle of lights and smoke and loud emotional music. They're, They're looking for miracles and for healings. They're looking for signs and wonders. But friends, God has given us signs and wonders. He's given us all the signs and wonders that we need. He's given us bread and wine. He's given us the waters of baptism. He's given us his very word preached. When we trust God's ordinary means of grace, of word and sacrament, which we'll talk more about next week, When we come together simply to hear the apostles teaching, to pray, to sing hymns, to eat bread and wine, we can trust and know that as we gather together as living stones, we are joined together and rise to become the temple of God. We can trust that we are Ezekiel's temple and that the Lord is here. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, says this. John writes and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Well, who's the bride? The church, right? We are the temple. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And we are the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. John goes on. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The city that comes down is the bride of Christ, the church for which Christ died. The perfect church and the perfect city where God will dwell with his people forever. This is why the writer of the Hebrews commands us to gather for worship. He says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, because of what we are now as the church, It would make no sense for someone to be added to our number without meeting together. Listen to what Paul says about us being the body. He says, For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We are one body, right? Bodies are meant to be together. He knits us together as a body, and we belong to each other. So when we come together as a church, it's no small thing, which means when we neglect coming together as a church, it's also no small thing. We're not just missing something that God has commanded us to do, or even that's just a good idea to do. When we miss coming together as a church, we miss tasting what eternity will be like. Don't you see, when we, when we draw this thread all the way through from the Garden of Eden, through the temple in the Old Testament, through the temple in the New Testament, to the glorious temple for eternity in the book of Revelation, we are seeing what heaven is like. And so when we gather together as God's people here on Sunday morning, this is heaven. This is the closest you're gonna get to heaven until Jesus returns or you die. That is why I am a fan of the evening service. If us gathering as a church is a taste of heaven, why wouldn't we do it twice on Sunday if we can? Because we glorify him together as only we can when we come together as a church. This is also why online church is not church. The word church means the assembly The word church means a gathering of those called out and we simply cannot gather online. Online church is a starvation diet. It's water in the desert. Yes, it will keep us alive for 40 days in an emergency, but without the food of coming together as God's temple, where he dwells, we will die. In fact, I would imagine if we follow up with people who have made online church, their steady diet, I would not be shocked 
that diet begins to decrease. One Sunday they don't watch, the next Sunday they do, then two Sundays they don't watch, then one Sunday, pretty soon, dislodged from this community, from God's temple, we drift because we're sheep. And if sheep find a hole in in the fence, they wander through it. And if there's any holes in the fence, it's online church. Because we cannot replace coming to this place on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. with God's people. Just like worshiping with JP on the screen makes us long for him to be here, watching online church should just make us long to be here. Now I can imagine someone saying, Pastor Patrick, you've made a lot this morning about us coming together as a church to glorify God, but aren't we supposed to glorify God in our daily lives too? And the answer is yes. So that takes us to our third point. What about when God's people are not gathered? So, like I said, we spent a lot of time this morning talking about gathering as a church on Sunday. But aren't we supposed to love our neighbor? Aren't we supposed to serve each other and the community? Isn't there about a thousand different ways that we, by God's grace, glorify him? Yes, absolutely. But this is where I want to get back to our thought experiment about our church in China that can only meet secretly on Sunday. So I imagine that they're in a basement somewhere hidden from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Sunday. While they're there, they hear the teaching, they sing a hymn, they eat some bread and wine, they they do every, every element of the service that the scripture clearly tells us we ought to have, they're participating in. Um, And they are the temple of living God, his fiery presence is with them when they're gathered. But this church probably also has someone or a few people set aside to teach God's word. And he studies and prepares during the week. Maybe he even meets with a few other elders once a month. The church probably also has a few deacons who secretly care for the needs of those in the congregation. The church probably has someone who can play the guitar for their hymns. There's probably even someone with administrative gifts who has figured out how to communicate with all the members secretly to let them know when it's safe to come to church that week or to tell them where they're meeting if they have to meet somewhere else because they've been found out. And notice these people all glorify God in different ways based on their individual gifts and calling and circumstances. But they're using their different gifts and callings to maintain and build up the church. Do you see that? So even somebody who's an evangelist, right? I can imagine members who are bold enough and gifted enough to risk sharing their faith with others in that context. And because they have the gift of evangelism, they are using their gifts to maintain and build up the church in a different way. And then every member of this little church lives their daily life, whether it's raising children, going to work or school, as Christians, as members of this little church, as part of the body of Christ, as members of the household of God. And so everything that we do in our individual daily life flows out of and then back to our connection to the family of God. So the one thing that we do that looks exactly the same is gather together as the temple to glorify God. And then we all glorify God in our individual lives in different ways based on our gifts, our callings, our circumstances, and even how much faith we have. People with more faith tend to do more because they they trust God with more areas of their life. And it's all done for the purpose of building up and maintaining the gathering And not even necessarily this gathering. Sometimes you love somebody else and they start going to some other church. 
as long as that's a good church, hallelujah. Notice, in our individual lives, we're not required to do anything specific. And I actually think much of evangelical Christianity puts weights on people here. They put weight on people. You, you better be doing your quiet time. You better be serving. You better be doing community outreach. You better be doing this. You better be doing that. You better be doing... Now, those are all good things, but we're not called to do all of that. Maybe we're called to do a slice, but what we're required to do is to come here and to drag our tired, weary souls to this place to see God's glory and to glorify him by receiving his mercy. Let me show you what I mean from uh, 1 Peter 2. Later in our passage, Peter begins to teach us how we glorify God in our individual lives. Um, but as he does so, he always bases it on our connection to God's people. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Notice we're not a chosen person. We are a chosen people. We're not a royal priest. We're a royal priesthood. And to be a priesthood requires to be part of a holy nation. And God makes us part of his people who glorify him together as his temple so that we together can declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we glorify God in our individual lives as citizens of God's kingdom because we are no longer citizens of this world and we glorify God in our individual lives for the good of unbelievers so that they too may see our good deeds and glorify God. Peter goes on. He says, oh, I skipped a verse, didn't I? Yeah, well, I've been talking about this first, but let me just say it, right? So the only qualification to be a part of God's people, to be part of this gathering, is not that you're serving the poor, not that you're in a Bible study, not that you do your personal devotions, is that you've received his mercy. That's it. That's your requirement. Have you received his mercy? Yes, then you're a part of us. You're one of us. And as you come here every Sunday to receive his mercy, guess what I think you'll probably do more of? I think you'll do more Bible study. Why? Because you want to know him more. I, th I think you'll probably love other people more because you realize that, that your sanctification is not about you being a better person. It's about you loving your neighbor so that they can come to know Jesus and glorify him too. Right? It it's all flows out of what happens here on Sunday morning. And so weak, weary sinners who barely have any faith come here and they receive God's mercy and grace. And guess what happens to them? In a non-legalistic way, they begin to grow in faith, which we'll talk about in two weeks. And then they go out and love their neighbor and evangelize and share. Why? To maintain and build up the church. So then Peter goes on. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles who abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Notice, that's what I've been saying, right? We live good lives before the pagans so that they'll glorify God. We abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our flesh because it destroys our soul and ruins our witness. Now, but guess what we all do? We all sin. And then we come back here, weak and wounded and weary, to receive more of his grace, to grow in our faith so that we can go out and do this better. But not, not because we have to do this to be part of God's people. No, because we already are God's people because we've received his mercy. And so I think sometimes we, 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 when, 
we are discipling people. We tell them, oh, you got to do your Bible study. You got to do, well, yes, you should. Those are good things. When, when what we ought to emphasize is get yourself to church on Sunday because it's a taste of heaven and you are so weak, you need to go and receive his mercy anew every Sunday. And guess what happens when you make that a daily habit of your, of your life, of dragging your tired body there every Sunday? You will grow in faith. I think about teenagers, right? They're, they're such babies in the faith. And we routinely put these weights on them. Oh, you got to start doing your devotions. You got to start doing, maybe they should. But really what we need to tell them is like, look, you're learning what a big sinner you are right now because it's all exploding out of you. And what you need more than anything is to know that God loves you simply because you believe the gospel. And what you need more than anything is to be in church on Sunday, hearing how much he loves you and receiving his grace and mercy. And then out of love and gratitude, you will go out and be able to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. You will be able to live a life before unbelievers that will bring glory to God and will draw others to this place. So by God's grace, we glorify him primarily by coming here on Sunday morning and receiving his mercy. And then out of the overflow of his mercy and grace, we will go out into our daily lives based on our individual callings, based on our gifts, based on our circumstances, based on how much faith he's given us. And we will maintain and build up the church and that work, which all flows back into what happens here on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we are your temple and that your glorious presence is with us this morning. We're so thankful that we know it's true by faith alone. And that when we try to conjure it up, we sin. But when we wait and trust your signs and wonders, you meet with us, you feed us, you give us grace and mercy that we need so desperately. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.